So go to First Peter, if you're not there. Um, I believe that God is in the midst of doing some, some incredible things. And with that comes uh, things we don't like, things we don't understand, um, things we don't desire, um, but God's redeeming love and affection for us as his people um, is beyond anything we can imagine. And so, um, can I pray real quick? Uh, I know we just prayed, but I, I need to pray. So, bow with me. Papa, you know the state of my soul this morning. And I know the state of yours. And so I rest in you. I run to you. And I say, God, unleash your presence this morning. God, lead us to your throne in such a way that we see you like we haven't before. Lead us to your throne in such a way that we see each other in ways that we've never seen before. And lead us to your throne in such a way that we see the world and our mission, God, like we've never have before. And God, might your unfailing love be our banner this morning. So God, uh, we surrender to you. God, might this text read us. Might it change us. Might we be submissive to your spirit and your leading and your conviction this morning. I pray and I beg of you. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in a series on 1 Peter and taking three weeks last week, this week, and the next week. And uh, Peter hones in on identity. Uh, and I said this last week that I believe that, that most of our struggle with sin, um, most of our unbelief in life is directly tied to a misunderstanding of our identity in Christ. And that's the very thing that Peter is trying to communicate to us here in these passages. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be starting at verse 22 here in a second. But I want to remind you what we did last week just to, uh, I think it will help. Um, we talked about the holiness of God. Um, and so uh, it was rather intense because anytime you talk about the holiness of God, like it's going to be intense. You can't really dumb that down. You can't really cookie cutter that. You can't really like pretty that up um, because it's intense. And so um, we talked about the idea that because God is holy and because he's redeemed us into himself, what does that make us? It makes us holy, called out ones, saints, holy ones is what saints really means. And so we looked at this major emphasis of worship, upward worship before a holy God. Um, I gave a couple cautions. Uh, I talked about the caution of, in, in emphasizing the sacrifice and, and righteousness of Christ, um, we've got to be careful not to, not to throw aside the biblical command to live holy lives. They're one and the same. They, they fit together. I, I give the caution of not using brokenness as an excuse for our sin. 
So we can have the tendency to say, well, the world's just broken. I'm just broken. Yes. I'm not negating brokenness, but what I'm saying is that it's not an excuse to continue in sin, right? It's okay to not be okay. Just don't stay there. Don't use brokenness as an excuse. And don't trivialize the payment of Jesus. Oh, Jesus paid for it. Yes, he did, but it cost him everything. Don't, don't belittle that. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to see how understanding our upward identity of holy people will lead us to live lives that are, I'm not going to call it outward, and you'll, you'll get this in a second, but are, that are inward, because we're going upward, relationship with the Lord, inward, relationship with each other, and next week we're going to go outward, relationship with the world. And so, um, I want to I lay a foundation here to start. Um, that I think, is, uh, I think is pretty important. Um, he, here's, here's the thrust of the text that we're, we're dealing with today. Uh, I summed it up in this statement. We have an identity of love, and God is calling us to live out that identity. Okay, now, some of you are sitting here, and you're like, well, well duh, like, I didn't need to come today. I knew that. But I, I don't think we really know that. I don't think we understand what that fully means, okay? Because, one, we don't realize that we have that identity, and we don't know the—and maybe we realize we have the identity of of love, but we don't know the implications of that identity. And I hope to make that fairly clear for us this morning, but I want to start with this statement by A.W. Tozer. It says this, What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what is it? What is it that comes in your mind when you think about God? Maybe you think about church. Maybe like when you think about church, when you think about prayer, when you think about, when you think about things pertaining to God, when you think about God, what comes to your mind? It is crucial. Why? Because it's going to affect everything that you do. Everything that you do is gauged off of how you view and understand God. If you see God as the most joyful, beautiful, satisfying God, it's going to lead you to run to him because that's where it's at. If you're not sure about that, you might run at times, but you're going to run away more often, right? So that's the, that's the foundational thing that, that really Peter wants to get to here. Um, my parents uh, built a house about six years ago out in St. Charles. Um, what else is new, right? Um, and uh, and so, um, so they built this house like six years ago, and um, if you know my dad, my dad's a, I mean, just a little particular. No, just kidding. He is um, unbelievably particular. Um, he's passionate about perfection. I'm not my um, father's son. Yes, I am. Um, anyway, um, so throughout the process of building this house, uh, he would go probably at least every other day. Um, that's, yeah, maybe more, but um, probably at least every other day just to see how it was going. And he always took his camera, and I'm sure the construction guys loved him. No, they really hated him. Guys, Steve's coming again. Um, here, quick, cover that spot up like, so he doesn't see it. Um, and so he would go, like, he'd go all the time. And he'd be like, you know, hey, what's going on here? He'd ask it. I don't know, this isn't right. Can we kind of change this? This doesn't look good. And it's like stud that's going to be covered up by drywall. And, da, da, da. and he's like, you know, we need to change that. Anyway, so um, he, uh, 
he took all kinds of pictures. Well, they moved into the house, and like a year, year, year later or so, um, his driveway just started settling and got this big old crack. I mean, the house is brand new, and his driveway is just got this big old crack in it. You go into his basement, his basement is the same way. Big old crack. And it's not the crack that they designed. It's like this massive, ugly, like you could fall in it crack in the basement. So what does he do? He goes to his camera, he pulls out his pictures, and he looks at the pictures before they poured the concrete. And what did he find? He found that the places where it cracked, they really kind of neglected to really put a foundation under it. There really wasn't any rock. And he took the pictures to the builder and he said, hey, we got a problem. My driveway is cracked, and on top of that, I have some evidence that you really didn't do what you're supposed to to pour this thing. Well, he got a brand new driveway. Um, basement's a different story. He's moved in. Everything's in there. You can't really get a new basement. The house is built. But, but what's the point? The point is this. They, they neglected the foundation, okay? And it ruined, it ruined it. And so um, the, the foundation that, that we saw that, that Peter begins with at the beginning of this book is this great salvation of God. That God is the hero. I said this, we've said this numerous times. God is the hero of our salvation. And he's going to use anything and everything to get us to realize that and, and run to that. Like that's foundational in understanding the holy presence of God and what that means in our lives. Now, how, how do we respond to that? How do, how do we respond to this reality? Because we can ignore that and just live outside of that. But let's go to the text and see, see what, it, what it says. Um, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, here's what I want to do. Um, when you look at that statement, you probably think, there's a whole lot going on here. He's going to have like 75 points and... Um, there's really one point, point. I'll probably stretch it into two, but um, the point and then the application of the point, but anyway, um, there's really one point, and I want to hone in on that, and I want to unpack that point for the majority of our time this morning, okay? Because when you look at the passage, first of all, 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, that's kind of like push that aside and hone in right now. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What's the next word? Since. Okay, so that's like the reality of something that already happened. And, okay, but the, the, the key this morning is this instruction. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay, so we're going to unpack that. And here's how we're going to do it to start. What is love? Okay, um, th- this is a really, um, really crucial question. Um, because w- it's been distorted by our culture, has it not? And, and probably maybe even within the church we even question, well, what is love? Is it how do we define love? I know God loves me, and I know my parents love me, and or maybe the, their love's distorted, and so does that mean God's love's distorted? And so um, when my wife and I were dating, uh, we were high school sweethearts, uh, and so um, when we were dating, uh, I remember a time, um, and she's going to laugh uh, when she hears this, but I remember a time when uh, 
we dated for four and a half years before we got married. And uh, I don't remember what point we started telling each other we loved each other, but that was like a big deal to me. Like, I'm not one to just throw words around, like words are important. And so, um, so we were at the point where we were telling each other we loved each other, and I have no clue where that was in the midst of those four and a half years. Um, and I remember we're sitting in her, her parents' house on the couch, and she, she told me that, and this was my response. Okay, and this is bad, okay, so this isn't like, you know, dating tip. This is like what not to do, okay? She's like, I, I love you, and I don't remember what we were talking about or what we were doing. And my response was this. Why do you tell me that so much? And, and it went bad, okay? Because here I am, I'm like this high school guy, and I'm like, I want these words to mean something, and I don't want to just throw these around and like, you know, love, like I love you, I love you too, and, da, da, da. and so I wanted it to be special. And so that was what was rooted in my heart, like, you know, I just want to be careful, I don't like, I want, I want us to mean these, and like, she was seeing it a whole different way, okay? And like, you know, there were tears, and like, it was bad. I had to like, no, wait, 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 I didn't mean it that way, I didn't mean it, like, okay, and so love is this thing that on some regards we say is very special and prized on others that can be thrown around. So we need to define love because I think there's kind of a question mark on, okay, what, what really is love? Um, here, here's, here's the first thing. It's rooted in everything Christ is and has done. Love is rooted in everything Christ is and has done. I love what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says uh, about this idea of love in the context of community. He says, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Like, you get that? Like, so my affection for Ben isn't rooted in how cool Ben is, but my affection is rooted in what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for him and the intersection of that. That's where my love is rooted. That's what Bonhoeffer's trying, trying to say. Um, John puts it this way in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, as if it's something we thought of, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it's, it's very much rooted in who Christ was, who Christ is, the sacrifice, resurrection of Jesus to pay the ransom for our sin. That's love. But the text helps us a little bit. I love it when, like, they're, you know, you, you're ever in school, and it's like, you know, what is the capital of Massachusetts? And you look in your book, and it says, the capital of Massachusetts, it, like, you just love those, right? It's like plain and simple, and you're like, you should know that anyway. Well, I don't, so don't hold it against me. Anyway, um, so look at the text. It says, love one another, how? Earnestly and from a pure heart. Okay, so, so not only is it rooted and grounded in who Christ is as, as a foundational thing, but there's an earnest nature to it. What does that mean? Well, here, here's what I think it means. It's not convenient. Love that's convenient? I'm not saying there's not times true love is convenient, but there's a lot of times true love is not convenient at all. Like, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes like, it's hard to love my wife. It's hard to love my kids sometimes. It's not convenient. Now, the world will tell you, well, that's when you get out, when you stop feeling it. Like, but love, it's not a feeling. 
It's an earnest reality of God set his love on me and everything within me leads me to set my love on every single person I come into contact with. There's an earnestness to it. It's not rooted in a feeling or how easy it is. Um, And and then the, the last thing that the text says is a pure heart. So there's a pure essence to it. Okay, so love, for me to give love, the the goal of it is that I will get something in return, isn't a pure essence of love. Right? No. Not not at all. But what what is, how do we get to this reality of a pure essence of love? It's, It's based in the holy nature of God. That's what makes it pure. That's why the world's love isn't pure. That's why there's areas of our love that aren't pure because they're not surrendered to the Lord. Does that make sense? To the extent they're surrendered to the Lord and he's identifying himself, we're identifying with him, he's identifying with us to the extent that we surrender to him and we say, God, define my life, define my feelings, define everything I am and everything that I do. Out of that, out of that foundation, flows a pure reality of love. Now, there's still growth happening. There's still, God's still working in us. He's still working on us. So there's times when we, we see, man, I thought my love was pure. It's just not pure. And we confess that. At least I hope you see those times, and I hope you confess those times. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. I think we can have this tendency to love the idea of community more than we really love each other. Because like, it's kind of the, like the cool, the sexy thing to like, we're a church that's about community. Oh, come check that church out. Like, it's like the buzzword. Like, who cares if you're about community if you don't love one another, right? We can be more about community than we are about loving one another. At the point in which Christ's sacrifice is granted on both of our behalfs. Okay? Now, so that's, that's my definition of love. Why, why love? Why does Peter in here give a command to love one another? Let's see what the text says. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. I'm going to stop there. From that, he tells us, okay, love. So, so first off, the reason why we're commanded to love is that your, your life, my life, has been set apart by obedience to the truth. Okay, I've, been, I've been set apart. I've been called out. And this is the reason why I exist. Greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's an identity built within me to to love. The problem is, I think so much we try to manufacture it. Think about that. Think about, I mean, think about the manufacture of parts. Right? I mean, there's this long process to it, and like we kind of conjure it up and plan it out, and like, I'm not saying there's not 
some of that when we're getting into times that are, it's hard to love, it's not convenient to love, and we have to be intentional about how to go about loving well. But love, love shouldn't be manufactured. Why? Because love really is a, is a secondary thing. And I'm talking about love for one another. Okay, it's really a, a secondary thing. Because when, when, when it's all about love for one another, the, the idea of love, the purity of love, where love becomes impure is when my love for you is based in me and not based in Christ. And so the, the impurity in my love, when, when I'm not living under this reality of the, of the holiness of God and his perfection and his calling on my life to live in relationship with him, then what happens? Like, I'm not gripped by him. So any sense of walking out his commands are absolutely manufactured to the extent that I'm even doing it. I'm not saying we can never manufacture and work through faith and love. Yeah, sometimes we, we have to. Sometimes I'm just not feeling it. Sometimes it's just not the overflow of my heart to sit with the Lord. Sometimes it's just not the overflow of my heart to, to love people. But if we're seeking to manufacture it, if it becomes the main thing to love one another and not the overflow of God's affectionate love for me, I can't love you well. You can't love each other well. If there's not a holy affection for the Lord, you're not going to love each other well. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. So the second reason that we, love is commanded is this. You've been reborn. You, you have a different nature. You've been reborn with an eternal nature, and love is the essence of that nature. You have a new identity. You have an identity of, of love. Otherwise, it's manufactured. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If your love isn't rooted in a sincere faith, in a sincere affection for the Lord, like it's no wonder it's impure. It's no wonder you can't love your brother well. you're not walking with the Lord. Like that should be a no-brainer, right? But, but I think we need to be reminded of that. I think Peter wants to remind us of that truth this morning. The essence of, of a sincere, affectionate love for God, rooted in God's affection for us, has to be the foundation before we can affectionately love others. Look at verse 24. He's going to give some practical, uh, practical picture of this. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, so what is he saying here? He's giving this foundation of our faith. What's the foundation of our faith? The truthfulness of God. 
right? He's talking about the, the word, of, word of God. If it's rooted in us, what, what does it say? It's like grass. What do, you, what do you do with grass? Like you cut it up, you pull it because it looks like wrong, like different than that part of grass. Like you burn it. My neighbor burned his grass several months ago. My daughter thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Daddy, can we burn our grass? Um, can we burn that car? Like she just thought it was awesome. Like what do, what do you do? Like grass, it dies. Animals eat it. There's no internal value to it. The grass withers, the flower falls. You plant flowers, my daughter will pick them the day you plant them. And then she's convinced that she can replant them and get water and water them and, and they'll grow. Like they're going to they're gonna fall. They're going to fade to nothing. Right? But the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, well, what is, what is he doing? He's pointing back, if you flip back to 1 Peter 1, 4, what, what does he say? You, you're, you're saved to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he's talking about the essence of the security that we have in Christ as a foundation when he says that the word of the Lord remains forever. It's not a perishable seed, but imperishable. Okay, now, let me, let me get a little practical here. How does this work itself out? How this love identity practically works itself out? Peter gets into that now in chapter 2, verse 1. So let's look there. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, so um, he talks about things to put off. Okay, so, so how do we live a pure love for one another? There's some things that we're going to have to lay aside that maybe is within us naturally that we're going to have to set aside in order to Love pure. Okay, what, what is it? So put away all malice. What is malice? It's the desire for evil to befall another. I never thought that. Yes, you have. We all have. The, the desire for evil to befall another. I've recounted before the story of my, my roommate in college whose uncle was brutally murdered with a baseball bat and all my, all my roommate could say was, I just want this, this guy to come to know Christ. What? Did you want him to burn in hell? He killed your uncle. No. I've experienced the grace of Christ. I want him to experience the grace of Christ. That is the opposite of malice. And that is not manufactured. That is the overflow of an affection for God that's based on God's affection for you. You don't manufacture that feeling, do you? You've been there? No, anytime you, you want good to come to someone who does harm to you isn't the natural overflow of who you are. If it is, you're way more spiritual than I am. So get rid of all malice and all deceit. How are you doing on that one? 
Do you know it's really easy to lie? You know, it's really easy to portray yourself different than you really are. Even to be in community. Man, I, I, would, I would be pretty confident to say that in the midst of a church of our size, there's people that are in community consistently that are living a lie. I'm not saying everything about you is a lie. I'm saying there's things in your life that you're not coming clean about. There's things in your life that you're living. People are deceptive, deceived to what really is going on inside of you. So you're not really living in community. And we're not loving well if we don't see those road signs and have those conversations. Oh, I don't want to be harsh. What if I'm wrong? What if you're not? Like, that's not love. Like you're worried about you. I'm, I'm speaking to myself here. I'm worried about me. What if I'm wrong? What if they're not really going through that? Well, there's probably something else going on. If there's some concern, you might not have nailed it on the head, but something's going on. Because if we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit's going to speak to us in those regards. Is He not? Hypocrisy, envy, slander. Man, slander is a tough one. It's not, it's not speaking harsh words against another. You, it's like destroying somebody with your words. It doesn't just have to be in front of them. I think gossip would fall under slander, would it not? Because you're belittling someone. When? When they're not around, they can't defend themselves. So, um, I, I was working, um, I worked two days a week at Subway, and I was working on Wednesday, and um, I was watching this, uh, I'm pretty confident it was a grandmother with her granddaughter, um, if not, um, never mind. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm watching this grandmother feed. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, do you like that one? Uh, I'm, I'm watching this grandmother um, feed her, uh, her granddaughter, okay? <laughs> and um, this, I don't know how old this baby was, um, but I think she was way too young for this grandmother to do what she did. So uh, the little girl's sitting there, and she like reaches her hand in the jar of food. And... Um, and the grandmother kind of nails her. Like, no! Like, and it was like loud, and, I, and, and, and like, like, I'm pretty sure I saw a hand go up, and I'm pretty sure like there was a, you know, a smack on the hand. And I'm sitting here thinking like, I, I understand why she did that, but I'm like, the kid's kind of young. Like, I don't think she knows. I don't think she gets it. Like, we, we need to, Train her. We need to, like, and, and, you know, granted, you're probably like, well, that's training her, you know. Let her know she did wrong. Like, you know, she's kind of young still. Like, but, but I'm, I'm caught by that situation in light of, like, some of these things. Some of these things that we just read about. Uh, malice and, and deception and hypocrisy and, and envy. Uh, I, I think we, obviously, we, we know within the, the church, we know what it means to be a Christian. We know how we should live and act, but sometimes how you actually walk that out, we, we don't know. 
So the most loving thing we can do is come to someone, come alongside someone, and, and lovingly embrace some of these deficiencies, some of these, the, the sin, we'll call it what it is, and train them how to come out from that, how to walk in victory in the midst of that. Now, obviously, that's what this mother was, grandmother was trying to do to this little girl. Obviously, didn't know not to stick her hand in the jar of food. But look at verse 2, and here's where I want to hone in a little bit. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Okay, so, so Peter's drawing a parallel here. And here's the parallel. He's saying, in the way that a newborn longs to drink the milk of his mother, like that should be your longing for the Lord. Now, I know that to some extent, like, we're just not there. Right? Okay, but, but the context, what's the context of this? Love, p- pure and earnest, loving community. Whereby we push one another for that to be the reality of who we are. So, so it's not so much about just enjoying each other. It's not so much just about um, having fun watching sports or shopping or not that any of those things are, aren't a part of it. But if the goal and aim of it is not this reality of pushing one another deeper into affection for the Lord, then it's not love. Do you agree with that? Like it's not love. To enjoy being together, but yet failing to really push one another in areas of sin and call out sin to enjoy being together, but really never push one another to the Lord? Like we want to call that community? We want to call that love? No way. Not according to this book. That's not what we're looking for here at North Church. It's not what I want to be a part of. And I'm pretty confident that's not what you want to be a part of either. So Peter, he's bringing out this, okay, how's this going? Now, what's interesting here is he talks about cravings. He talks about longings. Um, one of my, one of my uh, a friend of mine, um, for eight years, he hid from his wife his addiction to drugs and alcohol for eight years. He lived a lie before his wife and his kids. And uh, he eventually obviously got caught. And I guess, you know, be sure your sins will find you out. Um, and he got caught. And by God's grace, um, man, they're, they're working through a lot. He's a, um, a year out of, you know, intense times in AA and NA and God's restored their marriage, and there's still a lot to work through. Um, but but I just I've been talking with him and, and asking him like what like how did that how did that work like how does addiction work? And we've just kind of been hashing hashing through some of that stuff. Um, and and I think it's I think it's I think it's really interesting because here's what he said. He said he he worked in a very high stress job, and in the midst of that high stress job, like 
he wanted a release. He, he wanted um, to, to find some, some comfort in something. So what did he do? Is it, is it wrong to, to desire that? Comfort in something? No. It just depends on where you go with that. And so uh, he was a chef, and he worked at, worked at a lot of bars. And he even had uh, bosses who would offer him alcohol, underaged. Hey, let's, you're off the clock. Hey, let's have a drink. Or you're on the clock. Hey, we're slow. Let's, let's have a drink. And, and it just perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated. And what happens is it's a drug. Addiction is, is a drug that grabs a hold of you and begins to lure you in and you begin to make steps and you know you're headed towards trouble, but you really can't do anything about it. And I asked him how it happened, and he pinpointed this as the main reason as to why it happened. He was not in community with Christians. He's like, I got outside of it. I got away from the church. I grew up with this guy. Like, we grew up in the same church. Like, I respected this guy. And I'll tell you what, I respect him now more than I ever have because of the maturity and the steps that he's making. But, but I just want to talk about addiction for a second. And cravings. I want, I want to throw some statistics at you. Um, look at uh, look at these statistics. Um, it, it is estimated that that for every one person struggling with addiction, they will directly affect at least ten other people. Six million Americans are addicted to cocaine. Five to ten million to prescription drugs. 10 million Americans have a substance abuse or dependency problem. Only 2.5 million ever seek treatment. The number one addiction, marijuana. The number two, painkillers. One of every 10 adults is addicted to tobacco, causes more than 5 million deaths a year, about 15 years earlier than non-smokers. Alcohol. 23% of Americans consume more than five drinks a day. The highest use among 18 to 24-year-olds. Addictive drive is to, 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 to feel normal, to avoid withdrawals, to, to numb or self-medicate from depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, emotional pain. 1.4 million adolescents meet the criteria for alcohol addiction. Gambling. 3% of our population has a gambling addiction and of that, 48% have considered suicide. 14% have attempted um, because they are so far in debt. They live in secrecy from their families and others, and they see no way out of the hole. Eating disorders, negative self-esteem, desire to be better, to be skinnier, to be in control of their environment. One out of every hundred women struggle with anorexia. Four out of every hundred struggle with bulimia. 10% of the male population struggles with eating disorders. And without treatment, 20% of those struggling die every single year. Porn and sex. 70% of all men visit a porn site at least once in the last month. 10% of all adults admit porn addictions. 28% of this being women. 47% of family. This is unbelievable to me. 47% of families say that porn is a problem in their home. That's one for every two. That's 
doesn't include those that don't even know about it. Two-thirds of all divorces that were recorded by divorce lawyers in 2003, and that's a long time ago, were due to pornography-related issues. Now, this list is in no way exhaustive. We could go all over the place. I'm not saying these are the only addictions. We could be addicted to anything. Okay? Peter says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up. You may grow up out of these things. Into affection for the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, let, let therefore, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But I love verse 3. It's as if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. God's, God's design for the identity of love is for us to push one another out of running to other things for our affections and push one another to running to Christ for our affections. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before Him? Like We feel that way about other things we long for. Like, I thirst for coffee, and if I just could get some coffee, like, my life would be fine. And God's just around. Psalm 84, too. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know that I could ever get there. And I'm telling you, and this text is telling you, alone you're absolutely right. But when you get in the context of earnest, pure, loving community where the aim and the goal is our maturity in the Lord... could absolutely get there. Man, maybe today, God's there's some things you need to unload. There's some things you need to confess. There's some sin you need to come clean in. There's some things that you're involved in that are destroying your life, that are destroying your family. I'm not saying it won't be a long road. But I'm saying it'll be an even longer road if you don't confess and run to people who will love you well. And there are numerous people in this place that will love you well, that will love us well, and we're willing to admit where we're at. I love Philippians 1.8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I've seen, I've seen people. I've seen people in this church grow out of this passionate love for the things of the world and grow into a passionate love for the Lord. And there's nothing more delightful for a pastor. There's nothing more delightful for a Christian than to see people 
run to the Lord, to see people grow in the Lord. And Paul says, I yearn for you all. Why? Because when I get you all, I get more of him. Is that your reality? Is that our reality here? It's, it's an identity of love. It's what God has called us to. More than that, he's put it within him because it's who, it's who he is. Will we live contrary to our identity? Or will we become in practice who we already are in the eyes of God? And we're going to respond. And, and I would just encourage you. Some of you need some, some loving people to come alongside you. And bear some, some burdens. It'll be tough. The effects of sin are destructive. But the greatness of God's love is even greater. Will you believe that? Or will you continue to live in the lie that living in sin is easier than confessing it? There's freedom in this place. Amen? God's calling us to freedom. He's calling us to pure, earnest community. God is our affection. And we want more than anything else for each other to find our affection in Him. So would we just surrender to that now? Pray with me, God. God, I'm amazed. That your grace God I'm amazed that you love us God we don't desire you God on our best day our best attempts are filthy but yeah you're like where are you at I want to be with you I want to know you I want you to walk with me. I want to heal your brokenness. I want to give you more of myself. Yes, Lord Jesus. We want that to be true. So by your grace, would you help us walk in freedom and walk in repentance as we respond? In Christ's name.